Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Coming In. I'm Claire Gurley. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. We're so happy you're here. Um, this is a podcast where we talk about topics related to gender, sex, and sexuality. We are coming from a place of curiosity, so we can leave the prejudice, the judgment, the preconceived notions all at the door. Uh, we don't need them. We are just coming from a place of curiosity. Um we are actually more than just a podcast. If you want to check us out on Instagram, that is coming in project on Instagram. Um, you will see that these podcast guests and I have been collaborating on um, mindful artwork uh, to sort of visually represent how these concepts feel. Um, it's sort of a practice in art therapy. You can check out that art on our Instagram. Again, that's at coming in project. And there's also going to be a gallery show showing all of this artwork at the beginning of March, um, which is going to be really awesome and you won't want to miss it. So make sure that you're checking that Instagram today. We are going to be talking about something that I'm personally really passionate about. Um, we're going to be talking about reproductive rights and um, abortion in a post-Roe world. Um, I am joined by the advocacy and organizing manager for Planned Parenthood here in Nashville. They're also um, very involved with the Beyond Roe Collective here in Nashville, which I think I say wrong at the end of this recording. So just I'm going to link it in the show notes as well, but that's Beyond Row Collective. Um, they do a lot of awesome work. Um, but this guest is really awesome. They're an all-around badass. I'm really excited for you to get to know them. Um, this is Julie Edwards. Um, I learned so much from this conversation, and I bet you will too. So I'm really excited to just get on into it. All right. I've got Julie Edwards here with me. Julie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really, really excited. I'm really pumped. <laughs> um, we've gotten to meet a few times at yeah. different Planned Parenthood events, but I'm really excited for um, everyone to get to know you. Um, so you. to jump right into it, how did you um, first learn about sex? <laughs> I love that question, actually. I have I have a really terrible sex education story, believe it or not. I grew up in like really rural Appalachia. And when I was in middle school, my PE teacher actually took a group of us girls back into the locker room and she was kind of like, we we didn't know what was going on, you know? And so she was kind of like, who here likes brand new clothing? And we think we're about to get brand new clothes. So we all like raise our hand. And we're like, Ooh, me, you know? Um, and she was like, you know, boys aren't that different. They also like new things and don't want like hand-me-downs. And that is why like you should wait until marriage to have sex. And that was the and first time you heard like sex or it was that was just a, kind of your intro that was to like, thinking about it? That was like my first formal introduction right. to like any sort of sex education. Of course, I had like talked to my peers before that. Mm -hmm. um, and then I and then I went home to my grandmother because I was raised by my grandparents who are very religious. Um, and I told her about it because something just felt off yeah. about that. Um, and she was like, I mean, I don't love the way that they like told you about that but yes you should wait until marriage to have sex that that is correct and that was all the sex education I ever got wow yeah wow I 
am very sad that that is probably not a unique experience. It's no, not it's just not. To yeah. It's, yeah, that's I'm, sad. <laughs> I mean, you hear people telling stories of like, you know, like the candy wrapper or like the chewed gum yeah. or, you know, things like that or like they have you like lick chocolate or whatever. Oh, yeah, we did tape. So, you stick a piece of tape to those yeah. people and it's not sticky anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely not a unique experience by any means, especially given where I was raised. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the fact that I've come here <laughs> in my life is pretty astounding when you, when you think about where things began for me. Yeah, totally. So tell me a little bit about you and what you do for Planned Parenthood. Yeah. So my official title kind of just changed recently. I am now our advocacy and organizing manager, and I'm based in Nashville. I have worked for Planned Parenthood for three and a half years now. Um, I'm originally from yeah, like rural East Tennessee, actually, in the Appalachian Mountains, and went to college at UTK, so the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and studied psych gender and sexuality, a little bit of philosophy. And I had volunteered with Planned Parenthood and interned with Planned Parenthood in their youth sex education program in Knoxville um, and just fell in love with the organizers who used to work in Knoxville for Planned Parenthood. Um, And they kind of took me under their wing. And it was the kind of thing like, I, they could not get rid of me, you know, so I kind of just kept showing up till they paid me to be here. (laughs) That's awesome. I love, I think there's probably a rich history of organizers who just were showing up and couldn't stop showing up. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's something, I have a really personal stake in this work. And I think that that's the case for a lot of organizers who do any sort of like repro justice or repro freedom work. And when you have such a personal tie to the movement like that, you kind of, I mean, you care if you get paid, but you kind of don't care if you get paid one way because you're going to show up one way or another. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So you've got personal stake in this. Let's talk about kind of the history of abortion, where it comes from. Um, I know there are practices dating back to ancient times of people taking decisive action to control their own reproduction. Um, It does feel like people started, it doesn't feel like this, people did start uh, (laughs) performing abortions um, in secret with coat hangers. You know, it became very stigmatized. But how did we get from, you know, ancient kind of acceptance of this is our bodily autonomy to kind of the point we are now where it's a point of contention for a lot of people. Yeah, you know, there are so, that is an excellent question because there are so many different moments throughout history where the cultural acceptance of abortion looks drastically different to how it does currently. And I think it's funny whenever I'm talking to people who kind of don't agree with access to abortion politically to kind of frame it in terms of well abortion predates the law it predates government yeah actually you know um it has always been it will always continue to be whether it's legal or not yeah and i always think it's really interesting to look at the history of 
like medical science of gynecological science. Um, it has a really problematic history, especially what we know here in like Western culture, um, because all the information that we have about like gynecological medicine, we only have because some white dude experimented on black enslaved women. Jeez. And so if you look at that, and then if you look at like the puritanical times, even before that, the people who were doing what wouldn't have been considered gynecological medical science then, because, you know, women weren't allowed to be doctors or scientists, um, they were midwives. And more often than not, they were witches, you know, which is really interesting. And all of their knowledge kind of, you know, as soon as men decided they wanted to be doctors and they actually wanted to, like, look into childbirth to be exploitative, keep in mind, and to exercise power and to sort of formalize that within the patriarchy. Um, all of the knowledge that women had been collecting for centuries um, kind of went by the wayside and no one put any stock in it. And we actually lost a lot of information about herbal abortificants that way. Um, wow. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. I, I'm going to link this in the episode notes. I was reading on the Planned Parenthood website, sort of some stuff about the history of abortion. And I was fascinated by the midwives and yeah. it was really interesting. It was noted that men didn't start working in gynecology, white men, um, until the, around the civil war. Yeah. Um, before that it was midwives, most of whom were black women. Um, yes. And it wasn't a science or it wasn't like an actual medical field that, you know, doctors, nurses were allowed to really put any stock into until mm. white men started doing it and taking an interest. Mm. Yeah. And so around the Civil War is about when um, white men in the Catholic Church started leading efforts to ban abortion. Is that right? Yes. Yes and no. It kind of wasn't really publicly talked about. Like it was something that was very hush-hush. Mm. It was frowned upon. It was very stigmatized. It came with a lot of shame. Um because in our puritanical values at that point in time, any sort of like premarital sex, um, yeah, or any case in point in which a woman could, you know, exercise bodily autonomy was very much frowned upon. But more recently in our like cultural political landscape in America, you know, it wasn't until the civil rights movement started happening when all of the like religious right that we would consider today actually decided to take up abortion as their sort of wedge issue in their platform. Um, like the Southern Baptists used to be really pro-abortion up until mm -hmm. like the 50s and 60s because of racism, yeah. more or less. Yeah. Yeah. I read another piece in um, this article that talked about how even before abortion became illegal, it still was not accessible for a lot yeah. of women um, thinking about um, women who are enslaved and did not have any autonomy over their bodies yeah. and their um, the slave owners would keep them from 
having access to herbs or medicines. Um, a lot of those abortions were performed in secret, but mm-hmm. I think when it comes to women's bodies in general, there's a lot of shame. Um, it doesn't sure. surprise me that these conversations, even to ban it, were quiet at first yeah. um, because we feel uncomfortable talking about women's bodies. And I think we feel a lot of like social discomfort, especially then in history, acknowledging sex Mm. as well. Like it kind of combines two things that, you know, culturally we really didn't want to look at, which is, you know, women exercising freedom, especially exercising freedom outside of marriage and outside of what their husbands could tell them they could or couldn't do. Um, And then acknowledging sex for pleasure and not just procreation. Yeah. 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 Well, to kind of move on to modern America, Roe versus Wade in spring of 2022, if you didn't hear, um, that decision has been overturned and um, the right to ban abortion has been given back to the states. Many states have taken that up. As of recording, abortion is now illegal in 12 states with bans in place in an additional 16 states. So what is the process in states where abortion is still legal um, that a person has to go through to get an abortion? Um, what are different options kind of based along how far along in their pregnancy they are? Yeah. So there's a lot of layers to this question, of yeah. course. Sorry, uh, I kind of, I started in one place and then I was like, okay, but let's not go to where it's illegal. Let's go to where it is still legal and talk about no, it No, I think that's perfect. I kind of want to back us up and kind of like level set really quickly. Yeah. So there are a few different types of abortions that people can receive inside of like a medical setting. Mm-hmm. One is for like really early pregnancy. It's usually used up until about 10 or 11 weeks pregnancy. Um, We call that like a medication abortion. And that's where the person would go into the health center. They'd meet with the doctor. Most states have like laws mandating ultrasounds. Um, And then they receive two medications, mifeprestone and misoprostol. And they take mifeprestone 24 hours before taking misoprostol, they usually take it in the presence of a doctor and they go home with their prescription um, for misoprostol and they have their abortion in the comfort of their own home. Wow. Yeah. Takes about, you know, from the time you take mifoprestone, it takes about two days because you have to wait 24 hours before you can take the secondary pill, misoprostol. Um, But once you take misoprostol, you start bleeding typically anywhere within four to eight hours. and usually by the next day, you are like no longer pregnant. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. And that's, we'll talk more about this later, I'm sure. But there are variations of medication abortion that people use to self-manage abortions outside of a medical setting, um, just using misoprostol. And so that is also something to note that, you know, people even in banned states are likely going to be seeing as options now. But the second type of abortion is for people who are typically over 10 or 11 weeks pregnant. And we refer to that as either a surgical abortion or an in-clinic abortion. And that's where the person receives some local anesthesia. They sit with the provider and the provider can use a few different tools depending on what type of surgical abortion they're doing. 
but sometimes they use a little tool that looks like a spoolie and they scrape out the contents of the uterus. Sometimes we call this a DNC. Um, they use a tool that is like a vacuum and they vacuum out the contents of the uterus. Gotcha. Not the Democratic yeah. National Convention. No, not, not. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> not to be confused. But so those are the types of abortions that we typically see most often in medical settings. You know, they each have like pros and cons and they are each used for like different reasons in pregnancy most of those reasons revolve around gestational age um so there's there's that okay now that we have very few safe haven states where people can still receive abortions one those states that are safe haven states still have restrictions around abortion Oftentimes those restrictions look like waiting periods or they look like um, physician scripts that the providers have to read to you legally um, or they look like ultrasound requirements, you know, um, but really it's that waiting period that says like, oh, you have to have two appointments if you want to have an abortion and they have to be 48 hours apart at least or 72 hours apart um and a lot of these states still have gestational limits as well um a lot of them only go up to like 19 20 weeks or 25 weeks pregnancy i do have so, a question there actually yeah go ahead um considering that there are you know different types of abortions for how far along you are you would mm -hmm. think that you know, earlier on, wow, that sounds way easier. That sounds more manageable. But, you know, there are different reasons why people don't get abortions that early. Right. One of those, I'm curious about how early do people tend to realize that they're pregnant? Yeah, most people realize they're pregnant around seven or eight weeks, um, sometimes later, huh. especially before Roe v. Wade was overturned it was really common for people not to know they're pregnant up until about 12 weeks. Oh. Um, yeah. Just... Which would then <laughs> eliminate that first option of yeah. uh, a, medical, a abortion. medical abortion. Yeah. Um, most abortions actually happen within that, like anywhere from eight to about 12, sometimes 15 week period. Mm -hmm. um, of pregnancy. And so even then, even if you are able to receive a medication abortion, some people still opt for a surgical abortion just for ease. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So there are those things. And obviously we know that access is a huge issue now, which we're seeing a lot more people get abortions later in their pregnancy, not because they're unaware that they're pregnant, but because of that access issue. Mm -hmm. Because now it takes so much longer to get an appointment because safe haven state clinics are booked out, as I'm sure you can imagine, because they're, you know, taking patients from all of the surrounding states where people can't get the care that they need. Mm -hmm. So waiting times for appointments have been pushed out weeks, as well as figuring out all the barriers to travel now. Um, like instead of a 
one hour car ride to your nearest clinic. Now it's more likely like a one hour plane ride there and back. Um, and so, in or like an eight hour drive. Yeah. yeah. So in the grand tradition of privilege, um, yeah. there are those who have more access due to their position in yes. life, um, including like where they live. But even those who live in states with bans, it's much easier um, if you have privilege of wealth. Um, right. Like whether wealth, or not yeah. you can take time off work or if you taking time off work will result in lost wages, mm. whether or not you already have children and can mm. get childcare provided for you, um, whether you have pets to take care of, whether or not you have family and friends who can come with you and support you, and whether or not you can afford the plane ticket of a support person to come with you as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. That's complicated. Um, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's a lot there. And I yeah. do want to get into more of options for those who are not in places where abortion is accessible. But to kind of stay with the kinds of abortion we were just talking about, kind of backing it up, what is biologically happening in these two different kinds of abortion? Yeah. You kind of talked about how the uterus is being cleaned out. Um, but just sort of, I think people have this image in their mind of a fully formed little baby inside of someone's <laughs> tummy. Yeah. You know, these are the words we hear. Um, so what is actually happening? That's a really good question. I do want to preface with I am not a medical professional. I am not an abortion provider. Um, but, you know, I think it was, was it The Guardian that just came out with an article of actual pictures of the tissue that comes out following an abortion? Um, because in our popular imagery, you know, the people who run the narrative around like what the fetus looks like when it's being aborted are the anti-abortion protesters yes. with their big graphic CGI rendered signs oh, yeah. of like a fully like three-year-old toddler, <laughs> you know? My church had little like little fetus toys because yeah. we would have a sanctity of life Sunday and so we had these little toy yeah. baby fetuses that I would picture in my mind when having this conversation for years to come and I think that that's still the case for most people because most people don't know the medical reality of what's going on um and that's not our fault either it is strictly the fault of you know like our medical gynecological field is really patriarchal still and yeah. they still don't want to talk about abortion you mm. know and so there's a lot of mystery around what's actually going on in reality you know pregnancy up until oh i'm not even really sure even like a 12-week pregnancy when aborted it looks like cloudy tissue like there's no identifiable fetus to be seen really it looks like a sack of white cloudy tissue like truly wow. um which a lot of people don't know and when you actually have an abortion like a surgical abortion you can ask your provider to see what was removed from your uterus and a lot of people are really surprised that it doesn't actually look like like a baby you know like yeah. what they're expecting it looks just like 
clots of tissue. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. How um, in that process, I'm there's a lot of emotional process that goes on there. Of course. But in terms of physical process, what's recovery like? Yeah. So it depends on which type of abortion you did. Um, for medication abortion, I mean, keep in mind, it's painful. It's mm-hmm. really, really painful. You'll hear it talked about in terms of like just a heavy period, but it's actually, it's a lot more painful than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but most people are okay to go back to work the next day, wow. actually. Yeah. And with a surgical abortion, the recovery is actually like sooner and easier. Like you're going to want to rest that evening. You're going to be really crampy. But most people are able to return to normal everyday activities the following day. Wow. Yeah. That's kind of amazing. Isn't it? And I think that really goes to show, I mean, we talk about this, but I still don't think it's public knowledge that like abortion, no matter what kind of abortion you have, is extremely safe, Mm. very common, kind of like your run-of-the-mill, really ordinary procedure. Um, So like in medication abortion, mifeprestone and misoprostol are safer medications to use than Tylenol. Wow. Than Viagra. Like, and then like a surgical abortion, like your in-clinic abortion, is a safer procedure than a root canal. No way. Yeah. Isn't that wild? That like blows my mind a little bit. It really does. Yeah. And it's just, wow, it sounds like this very scary thing. And I guess that's really coming from the media and the stigma of it all. Yeah, which just goes to show how pervasive and like really innocuous stigma is. Mm-hmm. Like, you kind of don't even realize what pieces of your abortion knowledge are informed by the cultural shame and stigma until you actually, like, sit down and do some heavy research or have, like, important conversations with people who know what they're talking about. And then there's a lot of unlearning to be done. Yeah. Yeah. Which is hard when so many of us started with such a bad sex education you know really thinking about where we come from is important when it comes to this because I mean one of the reasons I'm doing this to begin with is I do not feel that I got a comprehensive sex education no me either and I think it's really important to note especially if you grew up in the south Mm -hmm. especially if you were raised in sort of like an evangelical Christian religious environment knowledge is not unbiased Hmm. like the information that we're given the information that informs our beliefs our opinions our values it more than likely came from someone with a vested interest Hmm. yeah a researcher has to be interested in the topic to begin researching it in the first place exactly yeah there's actually I forget who who said it but there's a scientific researcher who calls research a god trick 
because we're pretending like we don't have a positionality, like we don't have inherent bias coming into our research as scientists. Mm. Um, And so we're kind of pretending to be like this omniscient being where we can remove all objectionality, you know, Mm -hmm. and when that's just we're human beings. We literally can't uninform our personal experiences and how they tie to the things that we're interested in. I have never thought about science that way. Yeah. Yeah. Humans are biased and that doesn't just go away (laughs) because you're a scientist. Like, yeah, we like to think that it does. Mm -hmm. But what a clever trick we played on ourselves. And the only way to overcome prejudice is to recognize bias in the first place so all the best scientists really will like acknowledge their positionality which means that they acknowledge sort of like the privilege and the standpoint and the experiences that they're coming into the research with that you know that they've tried their best to sort of control for but are never going to be able to be completely untangled from what they do and their findings I bet midwives and witches admitted that they had invested interest in their their craft. If only we could know. Truly, I'm forever going to be sad that we don't have more documentation of me and you both. Me and you both. Yeah. Was any of that like destroyed, or was it just not kept track of? I imagine so. Around that time. All the information that we had, keep in mind, like women weren't taught to read and write at that point in time. So everything we had were just oral traditions. Wow. And so if the only things actually written and documented and invested in and shared culturally are the medical findings of really problematic, like eugenicist medical doctors at that point in time go research like the quote unquote father of gynecology don't i mean do it for your (laughs) for your own information but don't yeah father of gynecology oh no he's like in fact i wish we would like stop culturally referring to him as that because he he was the one who like exploited and experimented on like black enslaved women Mm -hmm. and that's how we have quite literally all of the foundational knowledge that we have in gynecological science. That's sick. Yeah. So now that we do have all of this knowledge, Mm -hmm. in the states where there are bans, there are serious restrictions or Mm -hmm. abortion has become illegal, what knowledge do we have? Um, You talked about using kind of self-administered medical abortions. Um, Yeah. But what, yeah, what options do we have? What are we looking at? I think a lot of times, especially when Roe v. Wade was initially overturned, you had a lot of people who were saying like, oh, this is the return of like the back alley abortion, the coat hanger abortion, Mm. you know, and don't get me wrong, like abortion bans will kill people. Like there will be death involved, 
but we're it we're not in the 70s anymore <laughs> you know um we have a lot of shared knowledge and better information about how to self-manage abortions outside of a medical setting and i think that that's what a lot of people are turning to now um but again that comes with a lot of prior requirements like you have to be really consistently tracking your period you have to be consistently testing for pregnancy in order to catch pregnancy in that 10 week window because the further along you are the closer to 10 weeks that you are the less effective medication abortion actually is mm. and so if you can catch it early and take medication to induce abortion early the more effective the medication is and of course, it does come with its own medical complications. Um, it, it, it is dangerous to do, especially to do alone, mm. but it is possible. And I think people want to know how to do it. I'm a part of an organization that's kind of, kind of new. Um, it's work that I do outside of Planned Parenthood, but it's called the Beyond Row Collective. They're also based in Nashville. And that's the entire premise of what they do. They teach people how to support someone through a self-managed abortion. Mm -hmm. And in that training, you get all the information about how to do a self-managed abortion. Wow. Um, but it's very much framed in like, this is how you be a support person for someone who's going through this. This is what you're looking for. This is what's happening. Um, you know, they legally have to frame it that way. Right. Um, but yeah, like that training's really popular. Several people have taken it and they host it once a month <laughs> and they get a ton of people that come to each and every one because it's information that people want to know. And I mean, I just didn't realize that something like that would be accessible to just your common person. You know, that information already exists all over the internet if you know where to look mm -hmm. i think it's just a matter of making sure you're getting that information from an accurate and reliable source and i think that that is the comfort that a group like beyond row can offer a lot of people mm -hmm. because we are also like trained from a national um, organization called SASS USA, um, and they train trainers on how to like go forth and spread the knowledge about self-managed abortion. Um, and so I think what offers a lot of comfort to people coming to a group like Beyond Row for that information is that the information is vetted, it's reliable, it's accurate, and that kind of eliminates all of the potential like bad misinformation you could find on the internet doing that research alone. Mm, absolutely. I mean, I see the internet as just full of like, <laughs> here's 10 easy tips and tricks that <laughs> might or might not kill you. You know, just yeah. like it, it does feel like, well, how do I know that any of this is true or safe? So having yeah. that information be available i assume free yes yes free. for free mm -hmm. and available there to you and i mean i don't know where people are listening from but i'm sure that your city or even greater state or area has 
something yeah. like this. If not, the national organization that I mentioned, SASS, you can find them on Instagram. And if you get a group of your friends together, they'll train you up to be trainers and to become that group, you wow. know, just like us. So there, there are ways if one wants to find them. That's really cool. And yeah. I feel like this is a good point to kind of move into the advocacy portion of yeah. like, now that we are in this place, I am glad that these resources exist, but we can do better. Oh, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> of course. We could have already been doing better at making abortion accessible, even mm -hmm. when it was legal everywhere. Um, but how do we move forward in a post-Roe world? That's a really good, really hard question. I, whenever Roe was first overturned, so whenever the Dobbs decision first came down, I had a lot of really well-meaning people asking me, like, so really how long is it going to take us to get abortion back? Yeah. It's, and this isn't to be a pessimist by any means. Like, this is the reality of the situation. It's going to take decades, if ever. Wow. Yeah. To get it legalized on a federal level again? Unless it's codified by Congress and then, you know, bye -bye, which it might, it might, depending on how the 2022 midterm elections go. Um, but even then, with the Supreme Court that we currently have, they can do all sorts of legal and policy gymnastics to make it to where we aren't reassured the federal right to abortion. And right now, what we have is Biden's executive order, which does state there are exceptions in law, like abortion is required for, you know, the health of the pregnant person. So mm -hmm. if the pregnant person's life is endangered, um, doctors are required to provide abortions, but they can still be arrested and sued. And they can only cite that executive order as an affirmative defense to sort of like build their defense in court as to why they provided the abortion. Well then, I don't, then how is it an executive? I don't. It's not, it's not. And you have a lot of doctors, especially in banned states who still aren't going to provide that care because they don't want to lose their license. They don't want to spend time and money fighting this out in the courts with nothing but an affirmative defense. Wow. I mean, you saw that recently in Chattanooga with a pregnant woman who, I mean, you can go read the article, but the woman was pregnant and the doctor didn't feel confident enough in just like providing the abortion herself because all she has is an affirmative defense. And that pregnant person had to take a six hour ambulance ride to, I think it was North Carolina in order to get the care that she needed. And by the time that she got there, she was actively in kidney failure. Yeah. So I don't even know if that actually <laughs> answered your question. Oh, yeah, but it's, that's, I yeah. mean, that's really hitting home the gravity of the situation we're in, kind of how bleak yeah. the situation we're in is. Um, so what are we fighting for then? We, it, it's kind of clear that 
federally legalizing abortion right now is not going to happen. Yeah. So are we fighting at the state level? Where are we? Yes. Yeah. Well, really, the state and the city level, like, believe it or not, our city councils have kind of the most power to protect us right at this very moment. We've seen a lot of different city councils all all over the U.S. pass sort of like policy around the fact that public funds aren't going to be used to investigate or criminalize pregnancy outcomes, which means that the money to back the police in investigating pregnancy related crimes um isn't there okay which is what we did in nashville that's what we've done in memphis you know um cities a lot of progressive like safe haven cities have done that um and that is truly step one you know that is like bare minimum just making sure that like even if these police departments wanted to investigate pregnancy outcomes or wanted to surveil pregnant people now that like the money and the funding isn't there to do that mm-hmm. that's kind of how we like cut them off at the ankles you know yeah um so there's that but another thing that we're fighting for is really like on the individual level on the communal level mm-hmm. and it's making sure that while it's still legal we arm ourselves with the information and the knowledge about how to take care of each other Mm -hmm. and how to identify where our resources are Mm -hmm. and figuring out how to establish ourselves as safe people that others can come to in a moment of need. Mm -hmm. And right now it is not illegal to provide information around things like self-managed abortion of course you have to be really careful about how you do that because it is like a legal gray area um but the that information is all over the internet and if you are someone who knows where to find it on the internet in a way that is safe and trustworthy that's a resource that you can share with your friends and your loved ones before they ever need it And so it's really a matter of arming ourselves with the knowledge before we get to a place where it is required of us. And if someone is sitting at home right now and this is like their first introduction to this, where would you recommend that they start? I would start by identifying your local abortion fund. Mm identifying if there are any local grassroots groups who are doing repro organizing doesn't have to be abortion related it can be reproductive justice more broadly it can be around like providing protections for pregnant people you know all of that is intertwined because once you step your foot into an organization where people are talking about the repro movement you're more likely to find people who have the resources Mm -hmm. and the resources local to you. Mm -hmm. So I would start there. And then beyond that, social media 
is our friend, you know, like you can follow organizations that are nowhere nearby you and reach out to them and say like, hey, I want to do something like this in my city. Can I set up a one-on-one with you? Can we talk through what that would look like? If you're really dedicated and you're really committed, of course, don't go recreating the wheel because that always ends up creating more friction and, you know, more barriers than is needed. But So like do your research, be thorough about it, talk to your neighbors, get, get dedicated, you know, like you actually have to show up and be in these spaces before people are going to trust you enough to share what they know with you. Mm. So yeah, make friends, build relationships, (laughs) be a part of your community, start there. Yeah. And don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, oh, of course. Because it can seem daunting when someone does have a wealth of knowledge. But yeah. I mean, I came to you and just asked you to do this. Like, you can just ask people questions, you guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like, I'm, especially if you're talking to people who are like, you know, the well known activists in your area, or maybe they are the expert medical doctor or the medical provider. Um, if you ask them for 15 minutes of their time just to pick their brain, more often than not, like they will say yes, but also like make it worth their while, you know, offer to buy them coffee, you know, do, mm-hmm. do what you can. Um, because a lot of us, especially in the more like grassroots sphere, aren't paid for this work. And so if you can be like, hey, can I pay you like, $20 for 15, 10, 15 minutes of your time, you know, um, something along that it's like low buy-in and it gives that other person sort of like incentive or initiative to respond and to be engaged with you. Um, and then, yeah, just show them that it is worth their time and that you're not just here to ask questions and do nothing with the information that they give you. Like they want to know that that information is going to go out into the community and that you're going to share it with others because that's, that makes our jobs easier, you know? In the great tradition of the midwives, oral (laughs) traditions, sharing what we know with each other. Exactly. Doing our ancestors proud. Absolutely. (laughs) I think we did our ancestors proud today. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I, um, I am discouraged and saddened by the place in the world that we are right now. Me too. But incredibly encouraged that there are people like you, organizations like Post Row and Planned Parenthood. Thank you. That are doing this great work um, and helping inform the rest of us so that we may like go into our communities and inform more people. Thank you. And things like this like make it all worth it. It mm-hmm. does feel really abysmal and it feels like you know, we're all kind of just like running up that hill <laughs> in the words of our our great our greatest ancestor, Kate Bush. But I I think having conversations like this with people who just give a shit, that makes it worthwhile for me being in a position where like it's fucking hard work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, it's worthwhile. I'm gonna link um information to the organizations mentioned thank you so that people can check you guys out and see the amazing work you're doing um but just want to thank you so much for being here and doing this um today thank you yeah absolutely anything you want to say you said a lot (laughs) i know (laughs) now that i'm like did i even cover what i wanted to talk about um i would just say like 
you know, showing up imperfectly is better than not showing up at all. Oh, yeah. I'm going to tattoo that on my face. I know. Same. Like, <laughs> staple it to my forehead. Yes. I need that reminder every day. I have it written on my mirror. So, yeah. Wow. Would you, we just need you to be here. You yeah. know, like, we just need you to ask the questions. We just need you to be present. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the first barrier for a lot of people. Absolutely. And you listening at home, you are worth it. You are valid. And showing up imperfectly is better than not showing up at all. So thanks for showing up today. And we'll see you next time.